this path activity is called practice. Because at times it's really not easy to do. Especially around this sort of time. Not for everyone, but around that third day. It's our dear friend, teacher, colleague, Ajahn Sajito used to say, he said, Kitty, you're eyeball to eyeball with your karma. <laughs> it all comes, comes right up. Ajahn Chah would say, you know, we, it's like walking into a hurricane. Excuse me, Katie Zara, but why would you do that? (laughs) Because we want to understand these currents, these floods, these winds, these addicted, compulsive reactions that perpetuate samsara, this endless wheel of suffering. ever looking for peace and happiness and finding it eluding us again and again and again. Even if the awakening process was so easy, everybody would be awake, enlightened, peaceful, empathetic, Manifesting compassion, generosity. But that's not the case. But something in in all of us, a sort of faith, a trust, that the source of the problem is not just out there, getting rid of them and then we'll be fine. I trust that we wouldn't be here, that there's something really significant about our relationship with this life that has a profound impact on whether they're suffering in our world, in our family, in our community, in our life. If we didn't trust on some level that it was possible to grow beyond our fears, see through our compulsive distraction, free ourselves from our chronic self-criticism, we wouldn't be here. having the chance as our team to see everyone in our small groups. I I feel really touched, genuinely, by your courage, your honesty, your humility, in sharing what you have been with, contemplating, feeling, metabolizing, breathing with and through.
basically, uh, I just want to say, uh, be patient. This path is extraordinary. It has a mysterious way of transmuting, dispelling, revealing the luminous, the peaceful that is always here. As Gulu was saying last night, beckoning. The word that the, the Buddha used is this peaceful nature is always a hipasiko. It's always inviting us to, to see. Notice me. But that doesn't come through just denying what we take to be me and mine. It's by patiently, with that light touch, that dawn was encouraging us, that simple knowing that the true nature reveals itself. I'm uh, very grateful for our team. It's so wonderful to have the opportunity to listen, to be with virtuous beings, honest, sincere practitioners, and to listen to the Dharma flowing through our team, the movement practice, helping us invite the body into consciousness so that the energies move. Also to be here with my beloved friend, partner, fellow traveler and journeyer, Tanisra. It's grace, but it's challenging. Sometimes at this, I'm amazed so many are still sitting in the middle. Sometimes about the third day you see a a pretty empty middle and there's a lot of people on the wall. (laughs) That eyeball to eyeball with the We've laid the foundation with our commitment to our gift to one another, to the world of restraint, non-harming. And we're cultivating this challenging but essential meditative middle part of the path, the mindfulness practice. As we, especially in these early days, Underline and honor this first foundation of mindfulness, this being with the body. The way we experience the body, the sensations. That's how we experience the body. And acknowledging that, that mysterious regulator of of bodies that movement element, that vitalizing principle of breath. Breath sounds like a thing, but actually it is breathing. Breathing in, breathing out allows the life force to flow. And oftentimes, and especially in these early days, there's this this sense of density, heaviness, obstruction as we begin to recognize some of the fatigue, 
the exhaustion, the knots of tension, the unacknowledged places when we're so busy and keeping up with the duties of our lives. And yet this gathered composure is so important for revealing the fruition of the path, the wisdom that liberates. Because if there's no steadiness of mind-heart, we don't see things as they are. And it's like, I know they don't probably do it anymore in the old days in the science class. When I was going to high school, you put a drop of water on a slide and look in a microscope and one has to keep one's eye steady <laughs> and you could look in and see the little organisms in the in the water but if one's moving you might get a distorted picture and take some stillness we don't really have a certain gathered composure. As the Buddha says, a composed mind sees things the way they are. When a composed mind is directed to something. If it's not a composed mind, then our so-called knowledge about ourselves in the world is not coming from intuitive wisdom, intuitive meaning right here and now, seeing, knowing things the way they are. If it's not coming from intuitive wisdom, where does it come from? Just views and opinion. They're a friend. They're an enemy. That's good. That's bad. We just get hypnotized by our thoughts, telling us what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong. And thoughts are so fleeting and ephemeral. I want to go be enlightened. It's incredible. I'm going to go to the sacred place. Be enlightened for the welfare of all living beings. And we're sitting. Oh my God. When's it going to finish? (laughs) Couldn't I be invited next? Enlightened next time. I, I loved it. Can't remember who mentioned the sound, sound retreat. I should have gone on, or the holiday. <laughs> but that's why contemplate has within the word temple. The old meaning of a temple was a sacred boundary that you consciously place yourself within the sacred boundary. Sounds like a paradox, but for the sake of liberating yourself. So you go into the sacred space, enthused about, I'm on the path. Hallelujah. And then as one's staying there, then sun's coming up, getting hotter. Oh, gosh. But because one is staying within the temple and contemplates impatience. Oh God, did I make a mistake? This will never end. But contemplating the nature of those moods, enthusiasm, boredom, irritation, dullness, doubt, This is a paradox. Holding on, staying with the limitation helps reveal the nature of what limits us. And as we recognize, oh, those are just moods, doubts. We let them be. We don't have to believe them. They are just what they are, moods, doubts. That's a big change from it's me. I'm excited. I'm on the path. I think I made a mistake. We realize it's a mood changing. Religion, that was the old meaning of the word, religere. Ligere means to bind, 
conscious binding oneself to practices for the sake of liberating. Yoga, same essential meaning. Yoga essentially means to yoke, to bind yourself. Bind yourself to a practice, to a cultivation that is revelatory, that reveals... for the sake of freedom. So it's a conscious just holding to a framework, like the noble silence, like the sitting periods. I mean, or, we, or we could think, oh, kitties are all... It's just not working. Being with the conviction, the feeling tone, it's not working. It's not working. is very important. As what Gulu said last night about the hindrances being teachers, he was echoing what our wonderful teacher, Lumpacha Ajahn Chah, our Thai forest master, said. He said, don't be in too big a hurry to get rid of your so-called obstructions and defilements. It's so important to know them. To, rather than be swept away, we know what it's like when we're swept away by desire, some addictive, not wise, compelling thing, then we think, why did I do that? We, we know the results of when we're swept away by anger and say and do things. I used to be a prison chaplain as a monk used to visit a young man. Been in prison for six years. He was 19 when I saw him, so he was in prison from 13. He was just playing with his friend and went into a rage. And, and he... got a piece of wood and hit his friend, killed his friend. Those are more dramatic, but to have the opportunity to get to know desire, wanting something that's not here. It's, yes, it's painful, there's friction. Or knowing what is aversion. Or to deepen our capacity to reflect on dullness. It's not a waste of time. Our Chinese master would say that if, when you're in these circumstances, if we just get moved and turned around by the state, then we just, if we're restlessness, we're just gone, hijacked by it. If it's aversion, we just have to run away. If it's dullness, we have to just collapse. But this practice of bringing kindness, interest, effort. What is this? What's happening? Then we have the chance, rather than getting turned by the state, we haven't have the chance to notice the state turn. Like when doubt is happening, it's just just not working. I don't know if I should 
do the walking now or do, do the sitting now or be with the breathing and where should I be with the breathing? We can get tangled, but if we just ask the question, what's happening? And, oh, there's Tao. Should I? Shouldn't I? Is, is this? Isn't this? We can know the doubt, allow the doubt to move. That's its nature. When I first went to Thailand at, uh, to be a monk, my parents were horrified. Because I was a... They were so proud of me because I had was at Oxford University. I had won a scholarship, a Rhodes Scholarship. After that, I was going to spend a few years and then go into medical school. And then my, I wrote my parents that I was going off to Thailand. And if you look on the map, Tennessee and Thailand, where I was, you cannot get a farther place from Tennessee on the earth. <laughs> and they thought, what, what did we do wrong? But my parents... And it's not that the, you know, Buddhist monks were easy to understand, as I like to say. Buddhist monks were thin on the ground in Chattanooga, Tennessee. (laughs) They just weren't. But my parents, they, they flew to Thailand. They wanted to see me. And this was in the 70s where there was cults and things and they just didn't know what I was really involved in. They didn't understand. But they cared about my welfare, wanted me to know. They cared. They went out there, somehow made their way to the northeast to this forest monastery, basically to a jungle. And I was so touched that Ajahn Chah had real time for my parents. And, and so those were the days of the, there had been the whole catastrophic Vietnam War and then the horrific bombing in, in Laos. There was rumors then of the killing fields of Cambodia on the borders of Thailand, there was the insurgency, what were called at that time communist guerrillas, right? And we were right near the Laotian and Cambodian border, our forest monastery. So I remember my father asking Ajahn Chah, isn't it dangerous? Isn't it dangerous? for y'all to be here. And Ajahn Chah said, yes, there's, there's danger. Danger from outside things. But he said, much more dangerous is recognizing these gorillas in another age They might have used the word terrorists, these thieves, these forces in our heart that rob us of well-being, that destroy the goodness in our life and around us. And Lumpa Chaj and Chaj gave a beautiful talk about it touched my parents about the work that we were doing 
in that monastery to understand the greed, the hatred, the delusion that manifests in war, in oppression. And he taught that peace is right here. True safety is right here. It's not somewhere else. But we don't see that. We're confused by that when the heart is pulling us all over the place. My, what got me to Oxford, it wasn't bad, I worked hard, but I was very driven to succeed, to study, do good on the exams, that wasn't bad. I was a wrestler to win the tournaments. So to me, happiness, peace was a place you get to. At Oxford, I was uh, writing a thesis on art, science, and mysticism in the work of Aldous Huxley. That's like the universe. Art, science, mysticism. It wasn't that. I wanted to understand. Arjun Chah was asking me about that. Then he... One of the things he did on my first meeting was got down on the floor like a a dog started sniffing <laughs> and saying some things in Thai that people in the around his hut were all laughing at and I still hadn't had a translation yet. <laughs> Finally, I asked my friend, could I have a... Tra-? I was laughing too because you don't expect to see a Thai meditation master down on the <laughs> floor sniffing here, sniffing there. And... Uh, I was laughing too, really. But uh, he finally got back up in his chair and my friend Doug said, well, he's saying you, you don't have to look all over the place. If you understand one thing well, you'll understand everything. If you try to understand everything, you might end up not knowing anything thoroughly. And he encouraged me to be with my breathing. This is the one thing well. This is where we're, this is the calming part of the practice. This is the returning and centering part of the practice, coming back to the body, coming back to an in-breath, coming back to an out-breath. Cultivating this primary relationship of just how to know something, this this awareness to be present for even one in-breath the sensation of an in-breath, the sensation of an out-breath. Yes, we want to understand a lot of things, but it begins with learning to be simple. Long in-breath, relaxing, letting go of trying to do it all, Can we be with one in-breath? Can we sustain presence with one out-breath? Can we relax while we're doing this? And our mind wanders as we've learned and we know about these hindrances. And for a while it is just useful to learn how to say thank you. I'll get back to you. And return an in-breath, an out-breath. 
sustaining presence on an in-breath, on an out-breath, relaxing so that that awareness, the energy of the breath can suffuse and permeate our body. Wandering, returning. as the steadying. As we do that, the nature of awareness subtly blesses and purifies as we're patient with this wandering, returning, wandering, returning, relaxing, beginning again. The energy from being diffracted, refracted, split, sprayed in all different directions as one's learning how to be simple here, now. That energy starts to gather. And as we start to relax that energy rather than just going to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, that energy starts to, to build up right here. If we relax, then it, it can be shared with the whole of the body. Ajahn Sujito described it as a, as a little boat that's on the sand near the shore, but as the tide rises, slowly, slowly, that at some point the boat lifts off the ground and is buoyed. As we're patient with this practice of being simple with an in-breath, an out-breath, with a step, with eating, with a restless mind, a wanting mind, a dull mind, an uncomfortable body, being breathing with, patient. This is how it is. Little by little, the energy lifts and rises. It takes patience. And as that energy and steadiness, this mind that was being directed here, there, starts to notice a composure, a brightness. It's the taste of when there's gatheredness within this heart, this awareness, there's the body breathing, vibrating. And the thinking mind, rather than racing so much, is just present to remind us, breathing in, breathing out, Some use counting, I heard in one of the groups, just a little one, two, three on the breast, just to remind us what we're doing. Or bud, to, or peacefully breathe in, peacefully breathe out. So the mind is just, thinking mind just there to keep us present. The body is being healed by presence. My first, my early experiences of peace, I just thought, that's it. So that's all I wanted. That's what's called calm. And it's wonderful, the taste of it. We love that on retreats. And especially as I started noticing more light and brightness, I thought, light? That must be enlightenment. That's called wrong view, but never mind. (laughs) But still, I just, and there's nothing, it's beautiful. That is one of the blessings of, that the Buddha wanted us to have in this calming practice of just returning again and again to the simplicity of standing, sitting, walking, not worrying about the future, the past, letting go and returning. But if we just cling to that state, it causes suffering because that state is impermanent. It's refreshing, it's skillful. I used to compare it to, I grew up on Lake Chickamauga. 
outside of Chattanooga. And the mystery of a to a young boy of sitting on the banks of Lake Chickamauga when it's evening, no, no wind, a smooth lake, sound you could almost whisper goes across. That delicious peacefulness. I love that feeling. And sometimes right unexpectedly you get this some motorboat, somebody's having fun, which is their fun, but ah. The calm lake, the wind blows, the sound comes. It's skillful to get calm, but to want to feel that way all the time. It's just, or as Ajahn Chah would say, looking for certainty in that which is not certain, you're bound to suffer. The nature of calm is that it comes and goes. The nature of the full moon is that it waxes and wanes. The nature of praise when we're appreciated is it's there and it's it's the same with the nature of pain shifts. Not understanding that in my early practice, I just wanted the calm. So for years I had a war against ticking clocks in the monastery. I so love the DPs. We'd be on retreats, and then once the abbot would sometimes bring this big ticking clock in. I'm thinking, what? It's like I try to get peaceful between the next tick, tick. <laughs> so surreptitiously between sessions, I'd put a cloth under the clock to try to absorb the sound or even look for a... Then at some point, I probably the echo of Ajahn Chah got into my mind, Kitty Sorrow, where's as he would say, is that clock disturbing you or are you disturbing the clock? <laughs> calm comes and goes. And that's where our calm, the samatha, the calming, has to be balanced with vipassana. Vip means to look into, pasana, to see into. Vipassana means insight. Calm and insight. They work together. Because their words, they sound so separate. There's even whole schools, samatha schools, that are big on the samatha calming practices, deep absorption practices, which are wonderful. But if one one can say, all oh, those Vipassana people... They think they're contemplating, but really they're just thinking in lots of circles. And then you can be in a Vipassana school and think, all oh, those concentration guys, they're just stuck in... Of course, I don't know that that's a big problem, being stuck in bliss, but anyway. <laughs> they're just stuck in bliss, but they don't really have wisdom like we do. Actually, Ajahn Chah encouraged us to see the calming, the investigating, our work together. The Buddha said they're like two oxen working in tandem to plow the field, to bring the harvest. Ajahn Chah said that it's like a candle. The candle and the wick. Samatha's like but if you just build the candle and you never light it, I've got the biggest candle on the west coast. <laughs> but if you if it's dark, well, what's in there? You don't really know. If you if you light it, you can see. You might imagine what, but if you see what's there, it illumines the dark space, we can negotiate. But if one only has a match, it doesn't, it doesn't last very long. It goes out. Candle 
is steadier. You can light that. It, it's more stable, sustaining the power to illumine if you light the candle. Just getting calm, 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 calm. It took me a while to realize that that calm, yes, the Buddha wanted it to refresh us, but to also use some of that composure then to reflect. How is it? And that the two, they work together. And that always in the sitting, it's really important to, at the end of, or sometime during every practice, to reflect some on these characteristics. The most revelatory one, the portal to the deathless, is, which you've heard mentioned by our team, is what the Buddha called anicca. A means not, nicca, not permanent, it's changing to actually experience and recognize change, so important. The Buddha talked about the blessings of generosity, the blessings of making offerings to help others, the blessings of when one connects with a really wise being and makes an offering to a wise being, one partakes of that mandala of radiance. That's all tremendous blessings. The blessing of offering to a, an awakened one is an amazing blessing. But even more blessed, was the Buddha said, was when we start to change our heart, when we start to align with the refuge, when we commit ourselves to Virtue, non-harming, that's an even greater blessing. An even greater blessing, one which is more fruitful, the Buddha talked about even for a few seconds. Allowing the mind to be kind, to open up and let our well-being include what's around us. But at the end of the list, what the Buddha said, which is even of another order, the Buddha talked about the extraordinary auspiciousness of holding in the mind the perception of change. When we notice And that's not far from the breath. We'll be looking tomorrow at how all of this balance between calming and investigating can be happen right when we're with something so simple, just like being with the breathing, being with the nature of sounds, like this Dharma talk. You might have an opinion about the Dharma talk. Gosh, doesn't Kitty Sorrow know on the third day? I mean, couldn't he shorten it up a little bit? <laughs> or it might be wonderful, or but whatever one thinks, the nature of the Dharma talk, which sounds like a thing if one touches it, with inquiry and sees that the nature of this, these sounds, this talk is ephemeral, is shifting. The talk is coming and going. The in-breath is appearing and dis- dissolving into the out-breath. The perceptions and views we have about ourself and our day. Our registering within, they're happening, these sounds, these perceptions, these feelings are being known. They're being received by an invisible ground of listening, which is our heart, the essence. When the Buddha says, and Ajahn Chah says, peace is here and now. We overlook it. 
when we grasp at the praise, grasp at the pleasure, grasp at the peaceful, even the skillful, smooth of calm, I just wanted that to continue. That peace is impermanent. But when we reflect on change, allow ourselves to appreciate the vibratory, ever-changing nature of the sensations and sounds, then everything and every circumstance, we realize that circumstance is changing. Everything we take to be me and mine is vibrating, shifting, changing. That's why on some deep level, everything is dukkha. It's, a, it's unreliable if we, if we expect. The nature of birth is that we take praise and we lean on it. That's, it's me. I'm, I must be good. Oh, God, thank goodness. Then when criticism comes, oh, what happened? We feel knocked over or we get angry. How dare you? You're wrong. But when we truly notice, appreciate change, and then appreciate the unsatisfactory, it doesn't mean to say things are dukkha as a bad thing. It means anything that we imagine if we cling to, that will bring us happiness. That's what the Buddha said is a delusion. And if something is changing, the Buddha said, does it make sense to call it me? You can call it your me and mine and myself. He said, that's just a way of talking. The miracle is when we let things go, let things come and go, then even the doubts, rather than me doubting and I've got to get rid of that, it, it becomes, for me, it just becomes, oh, there's doubt. And what is revealed is the shining, every pre- ever-present, luminous, womb, ground, essence, or whatever we want to call it. We can call it the prajnaparamita, that wise source. We can call it Buddha, that which knows. But as it's said in the Tao Te Ching, the name that can be named is not the eternal name. Whatever name we give it, it's just a name. We even see the changing nature of names. Walking with Ajahn Chah on alms round. One day he pointed to some boulders on the side of the field and he said, Are they heavy? And the disciples looked around and I guess thought, gosh, he's asking a question we can answer. So I said, well, yes, venerable sir, they're heavy. (laughs) And he went, nah. It's not heavy unless you try to lift it. (laughs) And when we're having a pain and having the concoction of not just one, but multiple hindrances. We're trying to lift and shift and change. It's heavy. But if we let be, let them go, it's not saying never do anything, but allow them to come and go. Let them turn, which is their nature. They reveal their changing, unsatisfactory, not-self nature. 
in that letting go, what is revealed is what is always already here. The heart. Ajahn Chah encouraged, we can do this, you can do this. Let's be patient and kind. Honor, honor the efforts that we're making. Honor this magic family of Sangha. It's not saying it's easy, but Sangha that is helping us. So I'll finish just with a phrase that I love remembering from Ajahn Chah. Do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.